imagine, demand, and build a world transformed. Hi, everyone. We're going to get started. So welcome to the World Transform 2020 and to this talk, Their Futures, Where is the Right Taking Us? My name is Wendy Liu. I have the pleasure of moderating tonight's session. And I'm really, really happy to be here at TWT virtually this year. I was unable to make it last year because I left the country, but I was a volunteer during 2018. And I absolutely love the festival and had such an amazing time and learned so much. So I think um, this, is a, this is a great festival and you should all donate, which I will explain a little more in a sec. So just before I introduce the session and the speakers, a few announcements from TWT. Firstly, to make the session more accessible, we'll be using a live transcription service called Otter. Attendees using Otter will have to follow a link and open the transcript as a separate window. The link will be shared in the chat by one of our tech volunteers. And if you're having any difficulties, please message in the chat. Secondly, as I'm sure many of you are aware, TWT is free for all, but this is only possible because of the contributions of our supporters. So if you're able to, please consider supporting The World Transformed at, um, on their website, theworldtransformed.org support to help sustain this kind of work year round. And lastly, a few chat principles. We want everyone to feel welcome in these spaces and we want everyone's voices to be heard. So please bear this in mind when engaging with the chat. Please don't use inappropriate, rude or unkind language and please don't spam. Participants who violate these principles may be prevented from further posting in the chat box. But if you do have a question or a comment for one of our speakers, please do fire away so we can include them in the Q&A towards the end of the session. And now onto the session itself. All right, so I guess the, the motivation behind the session is you know, the fact that we're living at a time when the right is on the rise around the globe. And even though the ideas behind TWT are very much not about that. We are we have a, a very radically different vision, a much more egalitarian, utopian one. At the same time, it is important to understand the more dystopian visions that are coming out of certain sectors of the political political spectrum. Um, and you know, right now, is in case any of you have forgotten, we're living in the middle of a pandemic that is being exacerbated and and is just having really horrific outcomes. Partly because many of the countries involved are being uh, run by right-wing leaders. And so, unfortunately, this is the reason we have to talk about the right as much as you know those of us on the left would rather talk about more progressive and utopian projects. This is the world that we live in. This is the kind of reality we have to reckon with and to really understand our current conjuncture and to build a strategy that will enable us to resist and fight for a better future we need to understand the ideologies, visions, and utopias that drive the radical right. Because unfortunately, that is much closer to being a reality than the left-wing ideas that many of us hold dear. And so to discuss this tonight, uh, we are very fortunate to be joined by a brilliant panel of speakers. Um, I'm just gonna read out the speaker bios. So first we have um, Ali Vargas, uh, Bolivian journalist and writer whose recent work on the political crisis in the country has featured in Jacobin, The Morning Star, and Telesur. Uh, it's possible that Ali will not be able to join us tonight due to technical difficulties, but we'll, we'll keep you posted on that. 
And then we have uh, Lizzie Oshi, who I've had the pleasure of meeting before. She is a lawyer, writer, and campaigner from Australia, where she has founded the organization Digital Rights Watch. She is also the author of Future Histories, which is a fantastic book that explores the political history of technology and social movements. Lizzie has also woken up incredibly early to join us, so we are all very grateful for her presence. Uh, and then we have Aurea Carolina, a federal deputy for Minas Gerais State uh, in Brazil, who is affiliated with the Socialism and Liberty Party, PSOL, in Brazil. We also have Melina uh, Revuelta, who will be translating Aurea's contributions into English. And finally, we have Alan Finlayson, who is professor of political and social theory at the University of East Anglia. Alan regularly contributes political commentary to Open Democracy, The Guardian, and the London Review of Books, and is currently leading research into the political ideology of the alt-right. So now I think we're going to switch over to, I believe, Lizzie. Yes. Hi. Great to see you. All right. Good morning. Take it away, Lizzie. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak. I'm so grateful to the organisers of The World Transformed. I think it's an amazing uh, conference and an amazing platform, uh, and I'm really honoured to be involved. Um, so I've been asked to talk about the politics of Silicon Valley um, and what where that might be taking us over the long term. Um, and uh, I just wanted to start, I suppose, in terms of trying to understand how Silicon Valley works. Um, one of the, uh, the great insights into this comes from the television show Silicon Valley itself. So Silicon Valley uh, is a great television show. It gives you good insight into how Silicon Valley thinks. And one of the key characters is a guy called Gavin Belson, who's a CEO who's ruthless and slick of a company that looks a lot like Google. And one of his pep talks to staff, he declares, uh, as he's geeing everybody up for entering the competitive marketplace, he says, I don't know about you people, but I don't want to live in a world where someone else makes the world a better place better than we do. And I think that gives you an insight into how a lot of Silicon Valley elite think, that essentially it's a form of hippie culture that's come from San Francisco that's run headlong into rampant capitalism, that it's a form of woke liberalism that's about respecting the freedom of the individual, about non-judgmentalism, about liberty, coupled with a commitment to the market. There's nothing wrong with making money and exploiting power to do so. And what oversees all that is an abiding commitment to the power of technology above all as a force that underpins progress in society. So my aim is to dig a little deeper into that psychology now and, and tell you where I think it's going uh, because I think it's an important force to contend with and it has been very powerful in the 21st century. And ultimately, I do believe it's a form of technological utopianism that drives a lot of thinking among the elite of Silicon Valley. And as Wendy mentioned, uh, if you're interested in this, I've got a chapter in my book where I talk about a bit about the history of technological utopianism as an idea uh, and track how I think it's been mapping out in the 21st century. So the first kind of idea that I think is really important to Silicon Valley elite is the idea that we live in a meritocracy, that those who hold power, the billionaire founders, the venture capitalists, they're a special class because they're the ones who make history through disruption and creative destruction, and that the CEOs in hoodies are the iconoclastic kind of revolutionary leaders of the 21st century compared to, say, the stiffs and um, boring kind of capitalists of the 20th century in manufacturing and finance. So who you can see on the screen there is Ben Horowitz 
Horowitz, he's a venture capitalist who's well known in Silicon Valley. He gives a presentation where he talks actually about how CEOs and entrepreneurs are the true inheritors of a revolutionary tradition. It's not just me that says that, that's what he says himself. He talks about his hero, not as Henry Ford or JP Morgan or these other capitalists from the American history, but he talks about... um, he talks about uh, Toussaint Louverture, who people may know was a revolutionary leader in Haiti at the end of the 18th century, which I think is kind of discombobulating that a venture capitalist would claim a, a figure from left history, from revolutionary history as his own. But what he's trying to do is situate uh, CEOs and entrepreneurs as being the true inheritors of a radical revolutionary tradition. I think it's something that we need to displace, but I think it's important to know. The second kind of uh, important element of Silicon Valley thinking, I think, is a commitment to data positivism, to the idea that the world is perfectly knowable uh, and that all problems stem essentially from a lack of data and being able to understand the world as it is. So you can see there a quote from Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, who talks about all problems as information problems, that with enough data, we can solve all of challenges facing humanity. And the third kind of key element I think of it is a valorization of design. So the idea being that with correct inputs and algorithms, with the correct data and the right computing power, technical systems can generate solutions to all collective needs. And you can see there Steve Jobs, the great um, figure of, of Silicon Valley engineering and design talks about this, that design, that engineers are some of the most important people in the world, can solve most of humankind's problems. And where this ultimately leads is this deep-seated commitment to the development of technology and its acceleration in its current market-driven form. And that, I think, ultimately leads to a technological utopianism where problems can be solved by technology rather than, um, rather than, uh, sorry, I'm just checking whether people can see my presentation. I'm not sure if they can, but someone will tell me in a sec. Um, Oh, okay, it's not showing on YouTube, maybe, but anyway, I'll keep going. Um, That rather than looking at the underlying social causes and um, political causes of social problems, that those who can't make, that those who make technology are the visionary change makers rather than exploitative billionaires. And Peter Thiel, I think, is a perfect example of that. He's got a quote there from his book. I've read all these, um, these books so that you don't have to bother reading them yourselves. But what he talks about is that humans... The, the magic of human humanity is that we can create miracles that are called technology. And I think this is a mindset that has largely escaped critique um, throughout the 20th century and this first part of the 21st, particularly under the Obama administration. Uh, there was a lot of confluence between this woke version of capitalism, this optimising uh, futuristic vision um, of capitalism. Uh, but that gloss really started to come off in 2016 as major companies were forced to contend with the consequences of particularly the United States election, uh, but also things like Brexit. Um, and particularly, I wanted to mention the radicalization among Silicon Valley workers themselves who started talking about the problems that their companies were contributing to. Uh, and If we think about um, the Marxist idea of, say, the dialectic, that there's an action and a reaction and then a synthesis, I think we can see how this is playing out in relation to the tech industry, that now we've had the tech elite put their position, there's been criticism of it, and as people are talking about regulating big tech, which is the solution that's commonly put, um, that in fact 
tech capitalists are getting on the front foot and talking about how they can be involved in the regulation themselves. I think that's a really important thing to remember in the consequence in the context in which we're considering reforms and uh, policy changes, that the tech elite understand that regulation is part of their future and they want to be involved in the process so they can make sure it's shaped around their own interests. Um, which brings me to the, the other point that I really wanted to spend the last part of my talk talking about that I think is so important in understanding the politics of Silicon Valley, which is their relationship with the state. That even though what we commonly think of and what I think many Silicon Valley elite commonly think of when they think about themselves is as libertarian, I think that the relationship between tech capitalism and the state is much more complex. It's definitely not as straightforward as it might first seem. So what I would say is that I think in many ways the tech industry shares a lot of the goals of the state in the 21st century, that the idea of data positivism and design, the importance of collecting data and then using it to design systems to influence people, um, that the more you know about people, the more you can change their behaviour, that, that in fact that's surveillance capitalism that shares a lot of interests and objectives with the surveillance state. And I think this relationship between industry and the state will be very influential going into the future. And I think we can see how that's unfolding in the course of the pandemic, where technological tools are promising really cheap and effective ways of managing people and centralising power in state authorities. Uh, and the tech industry is very much helping governments to do this, to manage border crossings, to manage how people engage online with politics, to, um, to, to optimise policing and monitoring of things like social distancing. Um, I think it's really interesting watching how the tech, the business model of, of, of tech capitalism fits neatly with authoritarianism or trends towards it. I think it's really interesting actually that Palantir is one of these companies. It's, it's designed, it's working with governments to optimise systems of surveillance, discipline and management. But the interesting thing if you haven't heard of Palantir is that one of its founders was Peter Thiel, who I mentioned before, a known libertarian who actually at one point as a side note wanted to build a system community um, where he opted out it would opt out of society with a select few and run their own society away from the uh, the inefficiencies and and um, bloated nature of government to run his own society of course the seasteading community didn't work but I think it's really interesting that a libertarian is actually running a company where the majority of uh, their contracts come from government and are designed to optimize systems of government surveillance of, of, of discipline and of management of people and I think that is deeply ironic but very important to remember. The other way in which I think the uh, relationship between Silicon Valley and the state is really important to think about is that um, the industry expects the state to continue a mutually supportive relationship whereby public uh, um, funding goes into seed funding essentially some of these industries uh, and making them viable before they get privatised. Essentially the costs of, of starting some of these technology industries and, um, and uh, tools comes is paid for by the public and the gains are then privatised. And we can see that with someone like Elon Musk where he, uh, you know, has a company, SpaceX, which is profitable, but only really on the back of huge amounts of government subsidies, but also decades of publicly funded space research. And that essentially he's becoming, I think, almost like an East India, SpaceX is almost like an East India company of the 21st century. Um, and, and in fact, Elon Musk has talked about the alignment between the spirit of colonialism, as he describes it, and his idea of going into space. Uh, and that this mutually beneficial relationship between the state and industry uh, is something that I think Silicon Valley is very keen to continue and something we should keep in mind as we talk about policy reforms and investment in technology by the public purse. 
So I suppose if there's a message to take away from this is that despite considering themselves radical and even revolutionary, um, the reality is that the leaders of Silicon Valley are, are torpid and grasping. They want more of the same, um, more opportunities to occupy our worlds and to make money doing so and to use that capacity, that knowledge and power to solidify the current structures of power. They're not interested in the revolutionary potential of technology, which I think does exist, to solve human problems like climate change, like wealth inequality, like the failures in social democracies. That's not their objective. And I think if we do want to reclaim uh, the revolutionary potential of technology uh, in the interests of the many rather than the few, we absolutely need to start looking outside of Silicon Valley. And there's places that we can do that among those organising to resist, but particularly among workers in Silicon Valley themselves. And I think that's the best way that we can guarantee that we get the tech we want rather than the tech we have. Thank you so much, Lizzie. And uh, I've, I see some discussion in the chat about libertarianism, and we'll go back to that at the end. But I just wanted to just quickly touch on one of the points you made about um, about meritocracy and how that's kind of the the underlying drive behind some of these right wing Silicon Valley visions. And what's so interesting about that is that the word meritocracy, I mean, as probably many people here already know, it was coined in satire. It was not a term meant to say, this is an amazing thing we should aspire to. It was a term coined by a social scientist, a sociologist um, named Michael Young saying, you know, this is what the elites think they have. This is what they really believe they have. And, and so I think it's worth remembering when we look at um, the the libertarian, the right libertarian understanding of government and what the government should do, because for them, it's perfectly coherent that they can take government subsidies because, you know, they don't really see the government as an end in itself, but more as a means to an end. And if government support will help them build their empires and attain power, then, then they'll take it because they don't really have an ideological opposition to just government itself. It's more like they have a fairly coherent framework of the world and they see themselves at you know, at a certain position in, in the pyramid. And what they really want is they want to bolster their own power and, you know, just punish everyone else, punish the, the poor. So yeah, I think it's, it's. thank you so much for that, Lizzie. It's it's, it's really, it's, it's a lot to think about. Um, and I think next we will move on to uh, Aria Carolina to explore visions of the future driving Bolsonaro and Brazil. And this section will be uh, a little, little longer because it'll be translated. We have Melina as the interpreter. So take it away, Aria. Olá, pessoal. É uma honra participar do TWT de 2020 e poder fazer essa discussão tão urgente sobre como construir nossas utopias a partir das nossas práticas cotidianas, né? como transformar esse cenário que é tão desolador de avanço da extrema-direita, de emergência climática, de violências de todos os tipos e apresentar a possibilidade de transformar, de fato, essa realidade. Eu venho do Brasil, um país que, neste momento, tem a tristeza de ter na presidência da República um dos principais expoentes da extrema-direita global, que é o presidente Jair Bolsonaro, que tem atuado de maneira destrutiva em todas as áreas das políticas públicas, das conquistas democráticas fundamentais que nós tivemos no nosso país desde o processo de redemocratização após a ditadura militar. Então, nós temos, nesse momento 
num histórico que já vem desde antes mesmo é, do Jair Bolsonaro assumir, um processo de destruição de conquistas democráticas, de proteção social, na área do meio ambiente, também é, na área de segurança pública, na área de defesa dos direitos de grupos como mulheres, pessoas negras, indígenas, entre outros, e tudo isso se acentua nesse momento na gestão do Bolsonaro. Hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to participate at the TWT 2020 and to discuss such urgent topics on how can we build utopias based on our daily practice. So, um, um, hearing here is the opportunity for us to transform all this violence, the climate change, all the challenges, and to change the realities that we have now. I come from Brazil, and now, sadly, we have as a president a far-right person, Bolsonaro, who works to distract all policies and all policy areas that we have and all the achievements that we've uh, um, managed to implement since the democratization of the country after the end of the military dictatorship. So historically, even before Bolsonaro, we've been going through a process of destruction of social achievements in Brazil, also a process of destruction of lots of policies and um, lots of uh, measures that have been taken in the defense of indigenous population, women, and the black population. So all, however, all of this worsens now under Bolsonaro's rule. Muito obrigada, Melina, pela tradução. Sim, nesse contexto, é, o que nos preocupa terrivelmente é que não apenas nas instituições nós temos esse retrocesso é, antidemocrático. O que há é, na cultura política brasileira, uma ascensão de discursos de ódio, de práticas violentas, que precisam de um contraponto cada vez mais forte, mais organizado, por parte da sociedade civil, dos movimentos sociais, das pessoas que lutam por uma sociedade equilibrada de justiça social, de enfrentamento às desigualdades socioeconômicas, de justiça socioambiental e também de bem viver né, para todas as pessoas. É, eu faço parte de uma articulação de pessoas que vêm de diversos movimentos sociais que se propuseram a ocupar a política institucional a partir de lutas que acontecem nos territórios, no cotidiano, né, lutas voltadas para a melhoria das condições de vida das comunidades, que vão de lutas desde a questão da moradia, passando é, pelo enfrentamento à violência contra as mulheres, até mesmo lutas da cultura, lutas de grupos de jovens, é, e tudo isso traz para a gente a possibilidade de que é possível, sim, apesar de toda essa desolação, construir alternativas em que nós podemos proteger as nossas comunidades. Um, so I'm um, I'm really concerned because um, all this retrocession does not limit to the institutions, but to the Brazilian politics as a whole, where we have an increase of hate speech, of violent actions, and 
all of these demand and counterpoint from the civil society, from social movements, for people who fight for justice, for social environmental justice, and for the bem viver, the living well. I am a part of a movement that puts together people from several different initiatives aimed at improving the living conditions, including housing, violence against women, culture, youth. And what I can tell you is that despite all the desolation we've been facing, it is possible, yes, to build alternatives to protect our communities. Nesse sentido, eu quero destacar o que tem acontecido nessa pandemia. O Brasil tem a marca terrível de ser o segundo país com o maior número de mortes em todo o planeta, isso é resultado da irresponsabilidade do governo federal, do governo Bolsonaro, que não promoveu ações para proteger a vida da população brasileira. Nós estamos chegando à marca inacreditável de quase 130 mil pessoas mortas. Então, a pandemia do Covid-19 no Brasil foi é, ainda mais aguda e escancarou profundas desigualdades socioeconômicas. Mas mesmo nesse cenário, nós podemos ver como que a organização da sociedade foi importante para cuidar das pessoas. E surgiram vários mutirões, forças-tarefas, em que a cidadania se organizou para prover mesmo serviços, né? destinar alimentos, itens de higiene, encaminhar pessoas para o acesso aos serviços de saúde e mesmo movimentar a economia local, né, que foi muito prejudicada por essa pandemia. Então, eu acredito que, apesar de toda a, a violência institucional representada pelo governo federal, que é ocupado hoje pela extrema-direita, na sociedade emergem é, ilhas de esperança né, que nos dão condição, sim, de continuar acreditando é, que quando nós agimos, quando nós nos organizamos, nós nos prontificamos, é possível transformar essa realidade. Um... And in this sense, I'd like to talk a little bit about the pandemic situation here in Brazil, which sadly is the second country with the largest number of deaths in Brazil. And this is a result of the irresponsibility of the federal government led by Bolsonaro that did not put in place any measures to protect the life of its citizens. And we've reached almost 130,000 deaths in Brazil. So the pandemic is even more severe in Brazil and it widened even more the major inequalities that we have in our country. However, in this situation, we saw the, the organization and the auto-organization of the society with lots of initiatives that were formed with task forces, with people who got together to organize and provide services, including food, hygiene, healthcare, and also to boost the local economy that was very much and is very much impacted by the pandemics. So I believe that uh, in, despite of all the institutional violence led by the federal government of Bolsonaro, we have in Brazil lots of beacons of hope in our society and I believe that um, if we organize ourselves we can change and transform the reality. Caminhando já para o final da minha intervenção, quero trazer o exemplo 
é, de como também tem surgido iniciativas que é, se conectam à minha atuação como parlamentária de tantas outras pessoas que têm ocupado a política institucional a partir dessas lutas que vêm do chão, né, que vêm do compromisso com as urgências da maioria da população. Aqui atrás de mim tem uma placa que é em homenagem a Marielle Franco, que foi uma vereadora da cidade do Rio de Janeiro, assassinada no ano de 2018, uma mulher negra, de origem popular, uma mulher de luta, que foi executada barbaramente num crime político até hoje não esclarecido no Brasil. E o assassinato da Marielle certamente tem a ver com o recrudescimento da violência política no nosso país. E iniciativas como essa ocupação institucional que nós temos feito tem encorajado várias candidaturas que se multiplicam neste ano no Brasil, que é um ano de eleições municipais, as cidades vão escolher os prefeitos e os vereadores, né, os que decidem a legislação local, e nós temos a esperança de ver mais mulheres negras, assim como Marielle Franco, assim como eu, chegando a serem eleitas, né, essa é, sim, algo que é uma, uma força que nos traz, assim, uma capacidade é, de organização, né, de projetar para participar das eleições, é, algo que vem de maneira muito orgânica do cotidiano é, da nossa sociedade. So to conclude, I'd like to give an example of uh, initiatives that are related to my work as a congresswoman and of other women as well, where our work is based on popular demand on the daily realities that we know and live. So behind me, you, you see a sign which has the name of Marielle Franco. She was a councillor of the city of Rio de Janeiro and she was murdered. She was executed in 2018 and it was a political crime and um, her murder is certainly related to the increase in the political violence in Brazil. So um, it's very important that uh, we occupy these institutional spheres in Brazil and this year we're going to have municipal elections. So we hope to see more and more black women like Marielle Franco and like myself being elected so that organically we can bring our struggles to these spheres of power. Eu quero agradecer imensamente a oportunidade dessa fala e valorizar muito a importância desse evento, né, que traz é, a partir de um diagnóstico do momento dramático nosso que nós atravessamos toda a humanidade, né, nesse planeta que é a nossa única casa, é, nós podemos projetar saídas, né? acreditar e imaginar futuros que nos dão mesmo condição de continuar lutando. A gente precisa dessa energia vital né? e essa esperança é uma decisão política. Então, com essa decisão, eu espero que a gente possa se manter em conexão. So I'd like to thank you for this opportunity. I'm very happy to be here and to speak at this very important event that is based on this diagnosis, on this common situation that we face 
worldwide. And also that's the situation that we face in this planet, which is our home and that together we can think of solutions, we can forge a future and we can keep fighting. I believe that hope is a political decision. And I think that, and I hope that this decision will keep us together. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Uh, and thank you to Melina for your amazing job of interpreting. We have some comments in, in, on YouTube just saying you're doing a great job. So we really appreciate that. Uh, now we're gonna move on to um, Alan, uh, Alan Finlayson. We do have quite a lot of comments about YouTube but I'll bring those up at the very end. Um, a lot of comments about and questions about what's going on in Brazil. But now we're gonna turn to the UK. And we're gonna explore the visions of the future driving the UK right after Brexit and COVID. This is a particularly dark time in the UK. Um, and I am very excited to hear from Alan to explain what's going on and what can be done about it. Take it away, Alan. Thank you, Wendy. I hope I don't uh, dampen your enthusiasm with what I have to say. Um, but thanks for introducing me and thanks to the World Transformed for setting all of this up. Uh, it's a really important and really valuable uh, organization in UK politics and also now international politics. Um, so as Wendy says, I'm gonna talk about a little bit about the UK, about the sort of ideologies of the future that are shaping the ways in which people in government are thinking, but also perhaps a bit more um, about the right more broadly as well as in government. Um, but to do that, before I talk specifically about the UK, I just want to step back a little bit. We've already heard quite a lot about different kinds of ideologies and different kinds of ideas in Brazil, in Silicon Valley and so forth. So let's just think a little bit more abstractly for a while. Is there anything or what is it that unites different kinds of right wing ideologies? Is there any core that is common across different versions of conservatism or right or far right politics? Or are they all really different? And the standard sort of answer is that what? Uh, the core kind of claim of conservative or right-wing ideologies is some kind of commitment to tradition, to doing things in the way they've always been done um, and not changing things too quickly, not having too much radical upheaval or change. Um, now, I want to disagree with that. I think that tradition is often in many ways important to different kinds of right-wing movements and different kinds of right-wing politics and ideology. But I think the core of conservatism and of right-wing politics more broadly is not a commitment to tradition, it's a positive commitment to inequality. Uh, it's a belief that inequality is a good thing and that hierarchy is the only stable and is the necessary, therefore, the necessary basis for social organization in any particular context. So a commitment to inequality is what characterizes at its core, I think, all different kinds of right-wing ideologies. But just having that, that commitment to inequality is not particularly a uh, rich way of thinking about politics and we won't understand right-wing politics by thinking just about that commitment to inequality. If you are committed to inequality, you have to explain what you mean by that, how that hierarchy should be ordered, how it should be structured, what are the ways in which you're going to identify inequality, what's the way in which you measure or rank people one above the other. And there are all kinds of ways in which ideologies can do that. You can rank people by some idea of their birth, their, na their family name, the aristocratic lineage to which they belong, or you can organize hierarchy in terms of people's success in what is said to be a competitive marketplace, their entrepreneurial spirit, their risk-taking business adventurism. You can, of course, also rank people hierarchically by something like ethnicity or nationality, or by some idea of culture and behavior, perhaps some idea of civilizational culture, the Judeo-Christian tradition versus other traditions, for example, or maybe you can rank people by intelligence in some way. So it seems to me if we want to understand ideologies 
on the right, we have to think about how, and in some particular case, a commitment to inequality is understood, how that inequality is measured, how hierarchy is conceived. So with that sort of background um, in mind, I think we can think about what's going on uh, in the UK today. So in the UK at the moment, it seems to me that at one level, the right is fairly unified politically, uh, not just within the governing party, the Conservative Party, but also a bit more broadly across the spectrum of right-wing political thought. But at the same time, I think that political unity hides some deeper splits ideologically, deeper splits over that question of how to think the right form of hierarchy, how to measure and distinguish between people and rank them from top to bottom. There are still in the Conservative Party and around it, those who you might think of as being kind of Thatcherite tribute acts, Thatcherite revivalists who want to return to what they understand to have been her version of neoliberal market competition as the way to sort out the successful from the unsuccessful, the good from the bad, the weak from the chaff. But there are also those who are much more committed to something that was a part of Thatcherism but wasn't definitive of it, which is an explicit sort of ethno-nationalist commitment, a belief that the country, probably England, although there are complexities about how that's thought in the UK at the moment, but certainly England is a source of distinction that those who are English have some kind of um, superiority to others. Sometimes that's linked to arguments about religion and religious cultures. And there are also a range of kind of somewhat disaggregated but still influential forces coming from the online right, from online ideologies and conspiracist kinds of theory, which also have their own understandings of how inequality uh, should be manifested, particularly in terms of how they relate to the politics of feminism and anti-racism. But as well as those Thatcherite strands, the more nationalistic strands and those on the far right more focused on uh, racism, there is also, and Lizzie sort of talked about this in relation to Silicon Valley, a growing strand of what I would call uh, dataism, a kind of belief in the, as Lizzie put it, the, the capacities of data to organise and to help us understand the world and the ways in which that should be central to how we think about and manage society in the present. There is, I think, a strand, particularly at the centre of government, associated but not confined to Dominic Cummings, uh, which shares that Silicon Valley belief in the capacity of the behavioural sciences to understand and explain what human behaviour will be, but also above all to predict human behaviour and the behaviour of economic and natural and social systems. Now that isn't necessarily a conservative position, but it is a conservative position if you combine it with the idea that because the data and the right technology and the right ways of understanding them can help us predict and manage otherwise risky, dangerous, unpredictable social systems. If you conclude that therefore it follows that the people who should rule should be those who are most capable of accessing the data, interpreting it, modeling it and making policy decisions on the basis of it. So those who can design and manage the, the systems for interpreting uh, the super predictors as Dominic Cummings calls them, or as he called them in his advertisement for assistance oddballs and weirdos. If those are the people who can make the data speak, who can interpret it and form government plans on the basis of it, then they are the ones who should rule over us. And that's a different way of thinking about how to govern. And it's a different way of thinking about how to organise not just politics, but also how to organise social and economic life. So there's a broad strand, really, of, of a broad range of different ways in which right-wing ideologies are um, conceiving of the dimensions of inequality that matter most to them. And lots of those ways in which they conceive things kind of put them into contradiction with each other. But they converge and unite, really, around hostility to liberalism and to liberals, or at least to a particular way of understanding liberals and liberalism. And that hostility really takes primarily the form of objection to 
what used to be called in the 70s the new class, the class of people who work in perhaps public sector jobs, people who work in bureaucracies, people who work with words, culture and communication. An objection to all of those, that kind of rising number of people working in occupations in the post-war period who acquired some kind of power through their abilities with and their control over um, communication language and managing people and managing social processes. The right more broadly from the kind of alt-right online to the conservatives in power sees that class as self-interested um, but also as irrational. Uh, irrational because it believes that it can establish equality and doesn't recognise from the right wing perspective the inevitable natural nature of inequality. They object to it, what they see as the use by the new class, by new class liberalism of state power to try and change nature, to force that equality, and see that as being a force of oppression. And you hear that in lots of different kinds of populist rhetorics. But it also objects to the bureaucratic power, therefore, and the embeddedness institutions of people who espouse certain kinds of liberal ideology, hence the kind of the myths about cultural Marxism that you find quite often in kind of alt-right, but also in the Conservative Party these days. So what that gives rise to is a politics that comes from the right that is in many respects reactionary because it wants to resist the developments and changes of liberal politics over the last 50 years or so, but becomes so reactionary that it ends up kind of revolutionary, that it wants to tear down and remake the social order to overthrow liberalism. And it partly does that because it thinks that liberalism has had its day, that it's out of steam, that it's slow bureaucracy heavy form of politics as archetypally identified in the EU uh, cannot last any longer, that its irrational resistance to natural inequality uh, will mean that it, will be, it is being shown to be redundant by the new data, the new tech, the new gene and other sciences. So what that leads to in the UK, at least in the, in the UK government, is implacable hostility to certain kinds of liberal institutions and you can see that in the uh, not really the beginnings, but we're going to halfway through a systematic attack on public service broadcasting that will probably lead to the dismantling of the BBC, certainly as we know it. Also hostility and attacks on the universities and also challenges to the civil service as currently configured. The point being to try and undermine the standing of the elite, which is seen as having power rooted in its uh, humanistic understandings of culture, human beings, discourse and communication. And wanting to replace that with people who are able to exercise uh, statistical power, power rooted in data and modeling and predictions of behaviors, people who work with procedures rather than work uh, with people. And that's potentially a very different way of thinking about societal government and politics, a kind of post-democratic conception of how we can organize society and organize economy using the insights of data and predictive sciences rather than the cumbersome mechanisms of bureaucratic 20th century democracy. And there are tensions between that sort of high-level dataist position and the more ethno-nationalist or free market versions of conservatism. Tensions that, as I've said, are covered over by a, by a unified hostility to a certain kind of cultural and political liberalism, but expect those conflicts to develop and intensify as these projects gain more of a footing in governmental policy making and get implemented. But also, as Lizzie indicated, expect perhaps some conflicts with the interests of technological capitalism itself. But fundamentally, I think we can expect to see conflicts caused by the fact that ultimately this will not work. The dataist conception of how technology can help us manage and organise society simply will not be able to manage and organise societies because its conceptions of, I think, human behaviour and human organisation are fundamentally wrong. 
So I think you see then a whole range of different conceptions of the future, all based on some idea of hierarchy and inequality, re-established or asserted in a new way, in a new forms of governing, which I think are going to be a dominant force on the right for some time, but also what's going to be driving perhaps even more than those ideas is the contradictions and conflicts uh, between them. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Alan. I really like the way you described um, all these different right-wing movements as unified by their commitment to inequality, even if it's of a different sort. I think that is a very helpful way for us to conceptualize it because as you said, some of these movements are also, they are um, very uh, you know, anti-liberalism in, in the way that it's played out. And in that sense, there are movements on the left that have a lot in common just based on that axis alone. But at the same time, we have to remember that you know, these people are not our allies. They have a very radically different vision of what the world should be. And so it's the question is not just, you know, can should you replace liberalism, but it's what should be in its place. And I think that's the question that demonstrates that there's a completely different ideology at play here. So uh, yeah, thank you all so much for your contributions. Now we're, we have time for questions from the audience and there are some great questions um, from commenters. Um, we're gonna bring everyone back in right now. Great, thank you. So first I'm going to ask Lizzie a question that was um, asked during your talk. And the question was posted at 11.44 AM from Linda Loca on YouTube. And I think this is when you were talking about Ben Horowitz and um, the way he, he and, and a lot of these other Silicon Valley figures act as if they are the inheritors of this radical left tradition, Ben Horowitz in particular, he seems to have an affinity for the Haitian revolution and Toussaint Louverture, and it's a little weird. And I think there's some there's some family history there. Maybe you can talk about that a bit more. But the question that Linda was asking is, you know, what is the meaning behind this tendency to appropriate left iconography and emptying it of radical meaning and reconceptualizing it as a tool for capitalism? And this is something that happens a lot with art. Why why does this happen? How does this happen? What why are they doing that? Do they really believe what they're doing? I mean. I think they do really believe in their own merit and capability to drive change and positive, um, positively influence the world and uh, it kind of signifies their motivation. I mean, when I read that story, I found it very discombobulating that a venture capitalist would make the uh, radical revolutionary figure that I've, you know, for my whole life associated with the left. Um, and in part, it kind of motivated me to write my book, actually, because I think it is the job of the left to talk about history and um, to discuss what we can learn from history and how it can inform our present and, and understanding of how change happens and how change is not driven necessarily just by ideas or enlightenment, but actually about, you know, social forces and material forces. Um, and it occurred to me that, you know, the left doesn't write its own history on these questions and the right will write theirs and they'll make use of whatever they like from history to be able to justify their position. Um, I mean, I, I think they genuinely do believe that technology accelerated is going to solve our problem. Those who are coming up with the great technological ideas deserve the, the capacity to explore that potential and that's really the only way in which we'll be able to progress society uh, and that does kind of align with an idea of revolution from the past. Uh, but I, I think it's obviously mistaken. Um, it is obviously then a rhetorical tool to justify their own position of power, their own capacity to exploit people. 
I, mean, I think it is really stunning how much um, our perception of Silicon Valley has changed over the last four years and how, how different the rhetoric that comes out of that place is now compared to what it was. And that, you know, it was largely seen as a rehabilitated form of American capitalism, particularly coming out of the misery of deindustrialization and the um, deterioration of deregulation throughout the last part of the 20th century. Here's a new upbeat industry that's about optimization it's about the future and it's making a lot of money and um that that kind of uh, gloss was very compelling um but it's quite clear now that that no longer really applies you know it's hard to imagine but vanity fair at one point was talking about mark zuckerberg running for president and how that would be a good thing and they were alluding to this and I think that's largely unimaginable now because, you know, people have seen him appear before Congress. They're worried about the power of his platform. They think he's he's very, he's powerful enough as it is. And they're kind of grasping, I think, generally the problems with this business model. So it is important to have rhetorical tools that justify your position. I don't think they always work, but I think that is part of it too. Um, uh, so, you know, there's lots of ways in which this happens. And my objective and my call for people on the left is to look at ways in which we can start to have discussions about history that are actually much more meaningful, that are um, that are, are well argued, and and make a, a as its central motivating cause a, a future that is for for sharing people's allowing human flourishing and promoting an egalitarian and society driven by equality, rather than um, to to justify and consolidate the position of a small elite. Great, thank you so much. And now we're going to turn to a question from 1155 from Music and Films on YouTube. What is Bolsonaro's base of support in Brazil? Which classes of society? And there's some more discussion in the comments. And Aria, Melina, if you are able to maybe give us an answer, who who supports him and why? Bolsonaro é resultado de uma longa história de como o Brasil tem a sua origem na violência, na destruição dos ecossistemas, desde o processo da invasão inicial, né, de como é, se instaurou uma colônia aqui com base na exploração é, de mão de obra escravizada, no etnocídio de povos indígenas, tudo isso está na raiz que explica como que Bolsonaro hoje se apropria de discursos racistas, ódio aos povos indígenas, do ódio a esses vários grupos que formam a sociedade brasileira como alimento para espalhar a sua política. Né? Atualmente, o Bolsonaro se baseia também na realidade da violência urbana, né? esse é um problema sistêmico no Brasil, então é, há uma criminalização de determinados grupos e a população negra é o principal alvo da violência policial, da repressão, e eu diria que o Bolsonaro também se baseia na organização de grupos paramilitares, milicianos, né, que tem relação com essa lógica violenta de um modelo de segurança pública que se busca um inimigo para ser eliminado, para o encarceramento em massa, que é exatamente o perfil de um jovem negro pobre, é, e, além disso, as questões morais, né? uma agenda de costumes muito regressiva e autoritária sobre os direitos das mulheres, sobre os direitos da população LGBTI. Então, há uma combinação de racismo, é, de uma agenda anti-direitos sexuais e reprodutivos e tudo isso com um pacote econômico ultraliberal de destruição do Estado brasileiro para beneficiar grupos econômicos.
Um, yes. So, uh, actually, Brazil is the result of a long historical process that is rooted in violence and environmental destruction, which started with the initial invasion and the settlement of a colony in Brazil with the uh, ethnocide of the indigenous population and with slave work. So, all of this explains how we have in the Brazilian society races, the hatred against uh, several groups in that uh, form the basis of our society. So now what Bolsonaro does is that he seizes on the urban violence. So um, he um, uses these strategies to um, target specific groups in the society and criminalize them, more especially the black population. So he makes use of police repression, of law enforcement to target these very specific groups. In addition, Bolsonaro has a strong support from militias and paramilitary groups um, that somehow operate this uh, public security policy that we have in Brazil, where the idea is to search and eliminate the enemy. And the perfect profile of this enemy is the black young population in Brazil. In addition to that, we have an entire agenda of customs, as we say, so against women's uh, reproduction rights, the LGBT population. So we have, in summary, have a combination of racism anti-reproductive women's rights and an economic neoliberal agenda that favors specific economic groups in Brazil. Thank you so much. And I think um, uh, what you're saying about criminalizing based on race that feels very familiar among not even just the the you know right far right you see this happening in the US under neoliberal presidents and this seems like something that you know maybe unites a lot of right wing regimes around the world um, so for the next question we have one from John Chapman uh, let's see for Alan to what extent has the a level results de debacle in the UK pushed back Right, right-wing dataism is, if it has at all, or are its ideological proponents so high power that they can brush such a defeat off? And just a quick comment: as someone who is no longer in the UK but does occasionally keep up with UK news, when I heard about that, that was actually pretty shocking. It, um, so yeah, Alan, if you can maybe just give a like a brief summary of what happened for those who who are aren't have not heard about this before. Sure. So this is this is a question about how the government responded to. Uh, the challenge of school students not taking their final examinations. Uh, so they didn't take the final examinations, they didn't have grades that would get them into universities, they didn't take them because of COVID, so the government had to work out some other way of deciding which students would go to which universities or what grades they had got, and employed an algorithm to predict the results that people would have got based on their past results, based on, but also crucially based on the past results of the school that they were in, which meant also past results of the kind of area of the country they were in. So what happened, unsurprisingly, was that the algorithm wasn't interested, of course, in individuals' results or individuals doing things that were unexpected, but was interested in affirming and, re and reaffirming the um, already existing differences and hierarchies in education. Um, so there was an outrage about that from all sorts of people, government backed down, and found a different way to give for pupils to be given their grades. So in terms of the question, I think it's a super interesting question. Has that um, exposed, as it were, the right-wing dataism? And I would say, I don't think it has. 
yet, or at least not to everybody. That's partly because that the um, the problem has been, I think, fairly successfully uh, blamed by government on the Ministry of Education, the Minister for Education himself, who is not up to the job at all, but also on the independent bodies that were overseeing education. So it's managed to present it as a mistake. And in, in a way, it's to the advantage of those who would want to promote the dataist approach that this is just seen as being incompetence on the part of the government, because it means that the actual causes, which is the attempt to govern through the use of algorithms, which can only draw on data of what has already happened and will always um, miss or I think will always miss a lot of the exceptions or the unexpected results, but fundamentally will reproduce existing inequalities. That has been not been um, uh, well, that, that's been covered over, I suppose I should say. I think there is an opportunity here for political movements to draw attention to the ways in which such algorithms are already employed in all kinds of areas of politics in uh, all over the world, but including in the UK, in allocating resources and making decisions about legal procedures, outcomes of court cases and so forth. So I think there is um, an opportunity there to say, look, this is how the algorithms work and they are not neutral they are not simply objective tools for guiding policy they are ways of legitimating policy options that have calculated effects so i think there's still a political um some political moves to be made about that i see lizzie wants to come in Unmute. um yeah i was just saying as an outside observer of what happened in the uk i think it is really interesting because um, what it confirmed to me is that uh, essentially it was a, a codified version of what already exists, which, exists, which is immense inequality in the education system, but optimised in an algorithm so you don't even need to take the exam to know what your results are. And I think in a lot of ways, like this datafied vision of the world kind of, it tells us a lot about how the, the world as it is, I suppose is what I would say, what kind of problems exist. And the the answer to that is to try and solve them, not to necessarily codify and entrench them in our digital systems. Because the other kind of example that comes to mind in this context is predictive policing, which, you know, I've heard others other scholars describe it in the, this way, but the, 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 the data that goes into that is not actually data about crime, you know, crimes committed and the like. It's about the state's response to crime. And so predictive policing systems entrench what already exists, the state's response to crime, and optimises it um, to continue doing what it's doing. And, I mean, I saw someone referring to Allende in the... Um, in the chat, actually, and I just wanted to talk about Stafford Beer, who was a systems theorist that worked in Chile in cybernetics, but one of his um, catchphrases is the purpose of a system is what it does. And, uh, you know, I think that's true in relation to an algorithm designed to uh, allocate students to universities without having to take having to make them take the test, but also a system of inequality in education, which leads to uh, a perpetuation of that inequality and a small elite continuing to preside over society through the uh, being able to access educational opportunities that aren't available to all. And I guess I wanted to make the point that, that technology does have the capacity for us to be able to know what the problems are and what inequalities exist in society and to be able to disorganise and tackle them. But that's not necessarily the objective of the people who are designing these systems. And that's what we need to keep in mind, that those who hold power will want to try and continue to hold it. And our job is to talk about alternatives. Great, thank you so much. And uh, now I have a question for, for anyone on the panel who wants to comment. Um, and the question is from Hannah Fair. 
how do we confront the ecological features the writer taking us toward? And I think this is especially relevant right now. I'm in California. We are in the middle of wildfire season and a heat wave at the same time as the pandemic. And it's just, it's absolutely atrocious. I mean, part of the reason the wildfires have been so bad in recent years is because of climate change, is because we're still on track uh, to just, uh, you know, keep uh, keep taking that oil out of the ground. And that doesn't seem like something that's going to stop anytime soon. At the same time, you know, in Brazil in recent years, there's been a lot of deforestation happening, a lot of harvesting of the rainforest under Bolsonaro. And I think this is something that we can see this as being part of the same agenda of treating the earth as just this resource to be harvested, not something to be sustained, but just something to, you know, just take take all the minerals, take take all the resources out of it and then just leave it empty. So so I, this is, I think this is a really important question. Um, so yeah, I would love to hear from from anyone, maybe maybe starting with um, Aurea and then Alan and then Lizzie, if you have any comments. What So what, first of all, what does the right want? What is the ecological future of the right? And how do we confront it? Eu acredito que nessa conversação é, transnacional que nós estamos fazendo é muito importante convocar os vários países a adotarem medidas para responsabilização dos, dos demais países em relação à questão socioambiental, né? Isso não seria diferente quanto ao Brasil. Eu acho muito importante que é, haja uma pressão internacional para que o país cumpra a legislação ambiental e não retroceda, né? Nós temos agora um ministro do meio ambiente dentro do governo Bolsonaro que é contra o meio ambiente declaradamente, né? É, inclusive, usa uma metáfora de passar a boiada, o que significa é, abrir passagem para que a legislação ambiental seja destruída, né? Enquanto a pandemia está atraindo a atenção principal da população, né? É, nós tivemos o dia da Amazônia, no dia 5 de setembro, e, e nós sabemos que a Amazônia é um patrimônio mundial, né? É, e cabe a toda é, a humanidade protegê-la. Então, é, além de ações locais, né, de toda a pressão da sociedade civil para avançar na legislação, para o seu cumprimento, eu acho que precisa desse pacto global. Paralelamente a isso, eu acho que nós precisamos também mudar... É, os nossos padrões de consumo, é uma coisa em pequena escala, mas que é significativa, sim, para é, progressivamente a gente sair desse modelo extrativista, né, de agronegócio, de produção industrial, né, a própria pandemia é, está relacionada à produção industrial da carne, ao desmatamento, então, é, se nós não adotarmos posturas mais responsáveis em relação ao nosso consumo, pelo, pelo menos aquelas pessoas de classe média, né, que tem um poder aquisitivo é, muito mais alto, é, é impossível que a gente tenha uma perspectiva de solução, de futuro ecológico, né, de proteção da vida nos próximos anos, assim. Então, é, eu, eu acho que cabe a todas nós uma responsabilização no nível mais individual, mas também em escala planetária, esse engajamento de todos os países para que não haja, é, como nós temos presenciado no Brasil, uma destruição ainda maior. Ok, 
Okay. Um, so I believe that in this conversation, it's very important to, to call on every country uh, to help us deal with this with this environmental issue. We, it's very important to have international pressure so that Brazil complies with environmental legislation. Now we have a Ministry of the Environment who is openly against the government. So he literally says that we have to pave the way so that we can allow for the illegal occupation of the, the of the land, of the forest and the illegal mining. So uh, on the 5th of September, we had the Amazon Day. The Amazon is a world heritage. So it is up to the humanity to preserve it. Additionally, um, in addition to the actions that can be taken by the civil society. I believe we also need a global pact. And it also goes through um, many other things, such as a change in our consumption patterns. It is a small scale action, but it can make it, a, it can make a difference. And uh, it is somehow um, an action that will allow us to shift from this industrial dynamic where we live in. And also, if we think the way we consume um, is very much related to everything that is happening now, the pandemics is directly linked to meat production, to deforestation. So I believe that unless we, or at least the ones who are able to, the middle class uh, um, population, unless we adopt a different uh, consumption uh, pattern, a different behavior, we are not going to have a, an outlook for the future. I believe that we have to take responsibility at the individual level and also globally, calling for a global commitment by all the countries so that we can um, prevent Brazil from uh, uh, devastating even more. Thank you so much for that. And now, uh, Alan, do you Sure. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I can. And, and if I can try and connect it a little bit to the theme of the kind of how the right wing ideologies and rhetorics work, I think it's worth trying to kind of distinguish so very loosely between, if you like, a, a politics that says no and a politics that says yes. And I think that you know, for a large part of the 20th century, the left side was the side that was saying yes. It was saying it was opposing the authoritarian side that was saying no, that was regulating uh, people in terms of their you know, um, movement of people, it was regulating people's sexuality, it was saying, no, you can't do this, you can't move out of your place, you can't say these things, you can't do these things. And the left was the politics of yes, for freedom, for more opportunities to do and say and be whatever you wanted to be. Now, what's happened is that the, the right has kind of managed to turn that around, particularly on the question of climate, I think, in that what you get is, on the one hand, an opposition to climate politics that comes from the more sort of conspiratorial side of things that says, no, this is about the elites. They want to control you. They want to stop you being able to do this, that, and the other, go on holiday, live your life, etc. They want to control you. And there's another kind of um, politics which might accept the climate science, for instance, but say, oh, but human ingenuity can solve it. We are clever creatures who can collaborate and invent amazing technologies. We don't need to stop growth. We don't need to do all these things that the, that the um, climate movement is telling us we have to do. And again, that becomes a case of saying, yes, we can do anything. We can invent, invent anything, be anything, uh, and presents the climate position as one that says, no, you have to stop uh, 
developing, growing, changing, inventing technologies, inventing whatever it might be. So I think that the challenge for the for environmental politics generally and the climate movement in particular is to find a way to make its case in a way that says yes rather than says no. Because as long as it comes over, I mean, in a sense, it has to say no in some set, to some degree in terms of wanting to limit certain kinds of consumption um, or at least change consumption patterns in some way. But it needs to be able to present that as something which is not denying human capacities for ingenuity and not rejecting humans' uh, desires to do things that are new and different and that are, un that are freely chosen. Now, I say that I sketch that out like I know how you do that. <laughs> I don't, but I think it's a problem that at the moment that needs to be recognised very clearly that when we might think we're articulating a politics of progress and freedom and harmony, we don't realise that we're being heard as saying no. And so we, we can easily be painted as being authoritarian by our opponents and that's what's happening right now. That, that, that is a great point. I think that is something that the the left gets accused of doing too often, just, you know, telling people you can't do things, you can't go on vacation, you can't drive a car. Um, and the there often is a, like a more utopian vision where, you know, the left is saying we need a different relationship to certain forms of consumption, different relationships to each other, but that message is not being heard. And that is a massive problem. Uh, Lizzie, over to you. Yeah, I, I think it's a really uh, helpful way of understanding um, the kinds of positions we're in in various debates, Alan, and I'm really grateful for you articulating that way. It helps me think it through as well. I, I think one of the responses of the left has been to talk about, and I saw this mentioned in the chat, you know, fully automated luxury communism or gay space communism, um, if you like. And I do think there is a tendency on the left towards uh, embracing things like accelerationism and the like, um, so the full uh, exploitation and, and um, development of technology uh, for left-wing purposes rather than right-wing purposes. And I think there is some uh, limitations in that approach, and I think we have to be a bit cautious about it. And um, But I, I understand where it comes from. It's partly also reclaiming the idea of a utopian leftist vision rather than a, an a Capital, capitalist realist one uh, where the future is a misery uh, that the left does have a, a way of talking about a future that is positive and and full of human um, autonomy and flourishing and I just wanted to bring one other example into the mix particularly around ecology and that is what is Jeff Bezos's vision around um, sustainability in the environment because uh, I think it's worth thinking about you know so Jeff Bezos obviously has a space company of his own um, called Blue Origin and he's talked about his mission in developing that company one of the visions that he sees or he talks about is um, having Earth as a place that you would go and visit and a population of a trillion that lives outside of Earth on other planets. And so then you are managing to revive Earth and its ecology as a beautiful place to, um, for people to spend time in, but you actually sustain the population and make it much larger by building um, communities extraterrestrially. And I find that a bit of an alarming vision because I really don't want Jeff Bezos to be in charge of building outer space colonies given how he runs his factories. And uh, I don't want him to be the one that manages to exploit, you know, asteroid mining in order to fuel that economy. You know, um, Elon Musk, I talked, I compared SpaceX to the East India Company before. Elon Musk actually talks about potentially um, allowing people to engage in a form of indentured labour if they can't afford to go to Mars, you know, on one of his space, his space 
crafts. You'll be able to uh, pay off your debt once you arrive in the colony. And you can sort of start to see what some of these places might look like if these billionaire um, visions are come to pass. And I don't think it's a world that we actually want. Uh, I don't think it's a, a colony outside of this world that we want either. Uh, and that, that some of these tech capitalists do actually think that sustainability of Earth and sustainability of the, of the world's population is a thing that's important, uh, but they have a radically different vision to the left. And I think we do have to contend with that and not allow the right to occupy the space of being the true ecologists or the true conservationists of Earth's um, natural beauty and, and wealth and um, importance, uh, because we can fall into the trap of bolstering uh, a right-wing vision of humanity's future. Thank you so much for that, Lizzie. And I think um, what you're saying about space travel and colonialism is just so interesting because on the one hand, I think the way these people justify it is they're saying like, well, if we had uh, the moon, if we had Mars, if we had all these other planets, then there'd be enough for everyone, right? Uh, and you know, here's the thing, there there is enough for everyone and it's just a matter of distribution. Jeff Bezos is worth $200 billion. I would not trust that person to ensure an equ equitable future, no matter how many planets, how many asteroids we had under our control. So I think that's, that's very important. Um, so now I just wanted to touch quickly on a couple of comments in the chat about, uh, so there's one from Music and Films at 1234, is tech as irredeemable as capitalism? Um, and then from Linda Loca, uh, how as a technologist, I would uh, I would like to imagine it is possible to think of it as a liberatory tool. And you know, this is exactly what Lizzie talks about in her book. I've also written a book on kind of on this topic as well. My book is called Abolish Silicon Valley: How to Liberate Technology from Capitalism. So I definitely believe that it is possible to have a version of technology that is rooted in a, a deep a different vision a more liberatory vision and lizzie's book which i cannot recommend enough it is um actually subtitled what ada lovelace tom Paine, and the paris commune can teach us about digital technology and so the very premise is that there is you know a, a different way a, a different history that we can um create from the technology that exists so i think we don't have that much time but i did want to I, I wanted to get um people's thoughts on just one more question which was, let's see. Sorry, one sec. Just while Wendy's if you want to put a pitch in for Wendy's book as well, which is well written. I don't want to be a mutual appreciation society, but I, I definitely think it's an insight into Silicon Valley politics at a much greater depth than what we're capable of discussing here. So if that's of interest, it's a great resource for that purpose. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Uh, and we've we've somehow lost Aria. I'm not really sure what happened there. Uh, I think we might have to Okay, so she has a connection issue. All right, so in the meantime, yeah, the question is from Andy Slack at 12.20 p.m., I think this is on YouTube. How are the right capturing the popular imagination and gaining votes from working class people if they're so committed to inequality? And I think, um, Alan, it'd be great to hear from you first because this is something you talked about a lot. If the right is indeed characterized by commitment to inequality, how are they able to sell that in a way that appeals to people even though the majority of people will not actually benefit from that vision? Okay, so that, that is a good question, um, and it has it has one simple crude answer and, and one better longer one. The simple crude answer, um, which I almost hesitate to say because um, it is too crude, but it's racism and nationalism. Uh, I say crude because I don't like that kind of blanket sort of statement, but I think that part of the argument I was making about the different axes of inequality was to get at the way in which you can justify one form of inequality between people's success in market relations, 
with another form of inequality by saying, oh no, but it's okay, people who are from this country are better than people who are not from this country. And I think that that's part of what's going on in the current, in the kind of present formation of conservative ideologies is a way on which you can, you can assert an equality that includes, as you put it in the question, working class people, while also legitimizing a different hierarchy internal to the country. So, but uh, that I think is part of what's going on. I hesitate because I think I, I don't want to kind of come across as just saying in a very kind of offhand throwaway way that that's how it happens because I think there, are, there is greater complexity within it. Um, because I also think that the um, it's important to see that an argument about hierarchy, say, based on um, your success in the marketplace is not the same as an argument about hierarchy that is seen as being coming from your birth or coming from your natural social position. So the, in that sense, the meritocratic approach that we've already kind of discussed um, and criticised can kind of have its egalitarian appeal because you're saying to people, you have the opportunity and the right to succeed over others. And part of what right and moves have been quite successful doing is attacking certain kinds of liberal establishment precisely in that way to say, look, the people who the, the liberal people who run all the the welfare bureaucracies, who run the media bureaucracies, who run the government bureaucracies, they don't care about you. They're just they're just doing things their own way. The BBC people are putting on TV shows that suit their interests and outlook. Uh, we do, we hate them too, like you hate them, and we want to free you from their domination. Uh, so then you can win people over to that because you share that common en enemy and you're attacking one dimension of inequality, a kind of cultural discursive inequality, inequality discursive and cultural power in order to introduce other kinds of inequality, but those aren't quite so obvious. I feel that was kind of a rambling and not super clear answer, partly because I'm thinking about tech liberation and consumption, but I hope that helps answer the question to Andy. Do you, do you mind, Wendy, if I just chime in for a sec, because I think the other one ahead, which um, uh, it's really the right-wing politics is really appealing to working people is that, you know, Donald Trump talks about draining the swamp and there's an idea that um, those who hold power in democratic representative capacities are decadent, um, corrupt, um, don't serve working people. And even though Donald Trump's obviously a billionaire um, himself, there's a view that he's a better person to be running society. The market is the better mechanism for organising social relations than democracy. And this is a serious problem, I think, for the left because, um, you know, there is a lot of people who hold democratic office that are not um, inspiring individuals, you know, that are that are people who do give over to vested interests rather than representing their constituencies. And we need to contend with that and highlight the limitations of representative democracy while also making a claim that it could be better uh, and that giving more people power, um, more power, more people more power is is an antidote to, to some of those problems rather than uh, a reversion and a, a return to just allowing market forces to dominate and control society. Uh, and I think that is an important thing that we have to contend with. One of the the things that I think is worth keeping in mind is that, you know, a lot of young people particularly are quite disillusioned with representative democracy and a lot of the, the statistical um, surveys and the like bear that out. Uh, and in the context of a problem like climate change, that's particularly troubling, especially when we see the United States, which does seem to be highly dysfunctional in dealing with this problem. And then you can look to a place like China, which is authoritarian, you know, largely anti-democratic, anti but is 
taking the problem of climate change quite seriously. And you can see how the appeal of authoritarianism might be, um, you know, growing compared to representative democracy and its failings among working people and among young people particularly. And I think the left needs to do the work there to not allow that, that kind of vision to take hold and to argue that democracy has a very important role to play in our future. And in fact, it's the only way I think that we can guarantee a future of sustainability um, and fairness. Thank you for that. And uh, another point I saw in the comments that I wanted to kind of bring up, um, music and film says, I don't think the main appeal of the right is racism and nationalism. I think that is actually an important point, which sometimes gets lost in these discussions. I don't, I think, you know, we're all probably on the same page about this, but just to kind of clarify, um, it's, it's worth, it's worth recognizing that people are not just voting for the right because they are like inherently racist. Um, people are attracted to different political parties for all sorts of reasons, often contradictory and incoherent. And part of the reason the right has such strong appeal amongst our, you know, is because of the absence of a good alternative. Because if your only options in the US are like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and you know Hillary Clinton as one of the kind of architects of neoliberalism, which maybe, you know, just got your factory factory closed or something, then it doesn't actually make sense to say that the reason you're the only possible reason you're voting for Trump is racism. And so I think it's worth disentangling the fact that people are driven to vote for certain things for all sorts of reasons. And they all have all these like latent, I don't know, beliefs and views. So yeah, I think um, that's a great point. And if anyone wants to comment on that, please uh, go ahead. I do, because I think that I think that point is actually right. And that's what I was trying to avoid mm -hmm. saying in my answer that, that I was. it's kind of, it's a, Policies that are racist and nationalist don't necessarily activate, well, they can, but don't necessarily activate those sentiments in people. And it's more, I think it's also recognising it's in part about how certain kinds of racist nationalist discourses can give people a sense of, um, or can work politically to kind of communicate some sense of um, worth towards people. And that's part of the problem. So if you look at the way in which, Amer in which Trump, for example, talks a lot about how much he loves America and how Americans should be feel proud and how much the left hates America. And that, and that discourse then gets used against Democrats, the left liberals, as it does in this country too. So I think it's important to think about what are the ways in which one shows respect to people and people's worth without use, utilizing discourses that are about distinction and hierarchy. And I think, so in that sense, it's a, it's a, it's a opportunism on the part of one part of the political spectrum and failure on the part of another. Great, thank you so much. And I think this is a probably around at the time we have to start wrapping up and just you know apologize for anyone in the comments who didn't get their question read out. It's I'm doing my best to get like a spectrum, but it's uh it's a little hard to make sure we we stay on time. So thank you so much to everyone who who participated and asked wonderful questions. There's a lot of great discussion going on. Um, and so before we go, just a few last announcements. So to continue the discussions, we have set up a dedicated space on our community forum. If you've already set up your account, you can click the link in the chat to find the relevant discussion thread to the event. I think someone will be posting it in a second. If you are registered for this festival, check your email for your signup link to the forum. If you're unable to find a signup link, please email info at theworldtransform.org. Uh, and also remember that loads of events at TWT are filling up very quickly, so be sure to register for any that you'd like to attend as quickly as possible. And make sure you're registered for the festival at theworldtransform.org slash register and then go to the individual event you'd like to register for. And finally, if you enjoyed this session and would like to help us sustain our work throughout this festival and beyond, please do consider supporting us at theworldtransform.org support.
Thank you to all the speakers. Thank you to everyone in the audience. And thank you to our tech team working behind the scenes to make sure this uh, streaming experience is, is seamless. So thank you all. View the full TWT20 program and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransformed.org.